now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. In Episode 5, Season 2, Just Science interviews John Collins during the annual ASCLAD Symposium held in Dallas, Texas. This episode takes us back to the summer of 1996 when the world's eyes were on the United States. Hosting the Summer Olympics was meant to be an important, defining moment for the city of Atlanta, Georgia, but is now remembered by a horrific bombing in downtown. John Collins walks us through the timeline, starting when law enforcement received an anonymous call forensic evidence of the explosive device, and how a pre-9-11 world tried to cope with such a shocking event. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to the Just Science Podcast. This week we are recording again from the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors meeting in Dallas, Texas in early May of 2017. Today we have with us John Collins of the Forensic Foundations Group. Many of you know John because he has become synonymous with training in uh, human relations and other kinds of leadership disciplines in crime laboratories. But before John was associated with that work, he was actually a forensic examiner himself. And so we're gonna go back into the Wayback Machine again today to talk to John about a very unusual but very famous case Welcome, John. Well, thank you, John. It's great to be here. I'm excited about this. I appreciate it. So at the time, you were working at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Is that right, John? That's right. I was a firearms examiner. I started there in 1993, and uh, well, firearms and tool mark examiner down at the headquarters lab just outside of Atlanta. Okay. And what was going on that summer uh, was uh, the Olympics was coming to Atlanta. Is that right? It's exactly right. And I'll tell you, John, I, I was thinking about this uh, just this morning was that what a lot of us kind of have forgotten was how excited we were as a city for the Olympics. And anybody that had driven through Atlanta at that time, probably for three years leading up to the Olympics, is that many remember that on the I-75, I-85 connector, which is that main interstate that snakes through Atlanta, there was a digital countdown board counting down the days, hours, and minutes to the start of the Olympic Games. And that was there for three years. So it just, it just became just part of the city. And so the lead up to the Olympics was incredibly exciting. Atlanta is a very international city. It has one of the busiest airports in the world. So being in the law enforcement community at that time, we had been preparing for it, not me so much, and, and the people that I was working with in the lab, but our commanders. And so once the, the game started, it was extremely exciting. Well, Carrie Strug and her right. bum ankle is kind of the... Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. That's right. So yeah, it was incredibly, it was an exciting summer. And then once the games finally arrived, it was really neat. I remember that it was also kind of a, a vindication for the city in many ways, because when I was growing up uh, in the 60s and 70s, Atlanta still had some of that, well, gosh, Sherman marched through about 100 years ago, and we still yeah. haven't quite recovered, but That's right. uh, Atlanta was really the new south at that time, and, and getting the Olympics and, and being able to show off in that way in 96 
really right. felt like they had come of age in a way. They did, and you're exactly right. And you'll also remember, John, the Atlanta child killer mm -hmm. case. The serial killings in Atlanta had also become known for that, which was a horrific case. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was really exciting for the city and for somebody that had only been down there for about three years, it was neat to, the Atlanta Braves had just won the World Series in 95. And so things were exciting at the time. And then, you know, the game started and then, boom, we get a, a big explosion in downtown Atlanta. And that just set off a whole sequence of events that I'll never forget. So did you all do any special preparation in the crime laboratory? Probably, I would guess at that time, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of, of work that you had done to say, okay, let's be ready for a bombing. I mean, it was pre 9-11. That wasn't the kind of yeah, thing you would have been it, ready for. We had people in, our, in the GBI that had gone overseas to previous sites of the Olympics. I think we had some people go to Sarajevo and uh, some other places that I don't recall. But the buildup was more from the intelligence investigative side, the, the city security side, and we were aware that as a laboratory that there was going to be people coming into the city, that there may be some things, but we didn't, we didn't anticipate, you know, anything that would really change our lives very dramatically. If something had happened, we would be ready for it. As you know, we're a pretty cooperative profession, and if we needed help, we could always get help. So it wasn't something we were worried about. It was more exciting than troublesome. So there was a bombing uh, at the Olympics, and not just anywhere, it was right in the main plaza, is that right? Can you describe that for us, try to set the scene? Yeah, it was right, right, uh, right in downtown Atlanta, right in the city center. So they had done a lot of infrastructure work in downtown Atlanta, and as you suggest, one of the things that they built was what was called Centennial Olympic Park. And what it was intended to be was a place of leisure and entertainment that people, visitors to the games, and even maybe some athletes could go. and and relax and have some food and it was just it was a really a park that was set up and uh, with with water fountains and so what they would do is during the games they would have vendors selling mm -hmm. souvenirs food and they would set up also a stage there was a main stage where there was live music so bands would play and so during the games you would have this kind of congregation of people that would come to socialize and, and we had great weather during the Olympics and so people were outside and to set the stage it was just this place of leisure enjoyment community socialization you know where people went and obviously we had a huge international presence because of people coming from all over the world for this thing do you remember like what time of day it was or uh, it could have been, yeah. I'm surprised because there were what, one or two victims of the actual bombing directly, is that right? Well, yeah, there was actually several victims. There was one fatality, as I recall. And I it, see. it was a woman, she was about 40 years old, mother, who uh, was taking a picture with her camera. And when the bomb exploded, which was a, uh, it was in a backpack before it actually exploded, there was a call that had been made from a payphone, which actually then became of forensic significance for latent prints. Right. So back then, as you know, John, better than anyone, this DNA was extremely new back then. I mean, yeah. we, I mean we didn't, we didn't yeah, have... Yeah, touch DNA off oh, the phone. Gosh. Are you kidding me? We didn't have DNA in our lab. And there would have right. been little or no video, I assume, also from oh, the yeah. site. There was yeah. v uh, very little of anything, and anything that they did take it was very grainy. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, there was this backpack right at the park, 
and there was a concert going on and it exploded. The bomb was a pipe bomb with black powder and he packed it full of nails to serve as shrapnel to increase the lethality, presumably, of the bomb. And, and this uh, poor woman, just one of these nails just went right into this lady's head and killed her. And they did the autopsy at the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in, in downtown Atlanta. And obviously, that was the beginning. And so you have now international headlines. What was an exciting event now became kind of stained with tragedy. Do you remember where you were when you heard about it? Well, John, it? you're going to laugh when I say this. You said an operative word about being pre-9-11. Yeah. I, uh, I had a family cottage in Canada at the time that my grandfather built in the 50s, and I drove up there, and I had to go through customs, and this, the Olympics had just started. And I go through the crossing in New York and go through customs, and there, you know, usually you go through customs and there are these kind of, you know, mm -hmm. agents that are trying to intimidate you. And, well, I just happened to get this very friendly young lady, customs mm -hmm. agent, and, and she says, oh, she says, you're from Atlanta. And, and I said, yeah. And she says, I can't believe you're not staying for the games. And, and John, I, I kid you not, <laughs> being the knucklehead that I was, I joked, and also being in law enforcement, I said, yeah, I said, I wanted to get out of there before the bomb goes off. <laughs> Great, John. And I know. And she, and she <laughs> and of course, when, when I saw it on TV, I'm thinking, Sorry. oh, geez, I'm going to have agents in fishing boats coming to my car. Well, it isn't like they didn't start to finger law enforcement people, or maybe they did, you know, at the time. It's a wonder that you weren't actually. <laughs> I, I know. You know, and we kind of chuckled. She chuckled, and I yeah, went on. But, yeah. but being in law enforcement, we knew that the potential of something happening was there. And so it was, it was really poor humor on my part. And obviously, I would never do sure. something like that again in today's climate. But, uh, but at the time, it was funny. She laughed. Yes. And, and, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't funny because I turned on the news and saw that, that a bomb went off. And then when I got back to the lab and came back to work, we used to, as a matter of practice, go down to the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office to get the bullets that, right. from the shootings that happened the weekend before. So it was my turn to go down. And I, I went down and you know, got the stuff. And they said, hey, you know, we got the nail from the bomb. I said, oh. And he says, you know, do you want that? And, yeah, we'll take what you got, so bring it back. Sure. And had, had you done much work on shrapnel at that point? Oh, none. Okay. I mean, I, I knew how to pronounce the word and, and spell right. it, but I didn't know anything about it. I had no explosive experience. And what I was, though, was a tool mark examiner. And so it was just one of those things, as often happens in, in forensic sciences, that sometimes we do work where you're really not doing anything that where you're drawing a conclusion. You know, and I, I think my supervisor at the time was really kind of uh, afraid of the press. Sure. And so he didn't want to touch it, and I ended up doing it. I got the nail out, I put it on the microscope, I looked at it. You know, what, it's a nail, what can I do? Well, I didn't know until I left the GBI shortly after and went to ATF that I would end up with a very a good friend of mine and colleague, uh, and one of my very best mentors, Jerry Miller, that I would end up, as Jerry would, examining thousands and thousands of nails over a period of about a year and a half. Now, the, the forensics of dealing with explosive devices has really accelerated. Yes. Especially since 9-11, since, you know, the TDAC at the FBI has right. you know, made it a kind of a, a specialty item as well. But like you said, I mean, you really had not had much experience. Did the folks at the ATF have much experience in looking at, at bombs? They must have had some folks who had some experience oh, yeah. in the area. Yeah, the, uh, the ATF lab had a, what was called, an, and I, I assume it's still there, it was called the Explosives Technology Branch. Uh, one of the guys there, I don't remember his name, but he was, uh, he was a pivotal crime scene responder at the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, that van that went down and 
there was a, a big bomb and, and damaged the under supports of the World Trade Center in 93. I mean, they had a, a lot of experience with not only device work, but also post-blast examination work at the crater. And But, I mean, nobody had any experience with nails, and the nails became just a critically important piece of evidence. Yeah, that's interesting. Tell me, how much sophistication was there in the bomb in Atlanta? Because, I, you know, one of the things that you can tell about the difference among the people who plant bombs is just looking at how smart they are with respect to what they're mm -hmm. doing and how sophisticated they are. You know, the best presentation I ever saw on it was actually from some folks at the Philadelphia Bomb Squad where they actually looked at how some of the expertise from the Irish Republican Army wound up flowing into Latin America and then eventually into the Middle sure. East. And there were some aspects of it that came into certain parts of, of the United States. But most of the lone bombers don't have that much sophistication. Mm -hmm. How sophisticated was the bomb at the Atlanta Olympics? Well, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say. I would venture a guess that the people that did the most work on the device itself would probably have described it as being of average sophistication. And typically, the sophistication in the bomb comes with the actual initiation device, you know, whatever it is that, whether it's a timing system or a remote detonator of some sort, it's not always necessarily in how the bomb is packaged or the explosive material that's used, but how do you actually trigger the firing chain that leads mm -hmm. to the actual detonation of the material to be ridiculously technical. But in a pipe bomb, you have a deflagration. It's a lower order type of explosion a little bit slower, but it's contained in a pipe. And so we had a guy there, just he was brilliant and very experienced, uh, Lloyd Irwin at ATF, who did a tremendous amount of work on that case. And as I recall, I think they probably would have said it was of average uh, complexity. But I don't think it was anything that would have led us to believe that this was just an extremely you know, sophisticated uh, individual that did this. There was never any of that kind of conversation. Well, you mentioned it's black powder. So it wasn't like he used some sort of peroxide or you know, right. some other. Right, it was a pipe yeah. bomb. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. a pipe bomb in a backpack. Then it becomes a question of, well, how do you detonate it remotely? You know, you, sure. you timer. Yeah. yeah. Now, when the bomb went off, there, there was the forewarning involved. And do we know now that forewarning came from the bomber himself, not from somebody else or who had some knowledge? Yeah, as I recall, quite a bit of video, I wasn't part of this, but video enhancement work and yeah. a cloaked individual at the payphone making a phone call that was believed to have been made by Eric Rudolph, who became the, the prime suspect. And obviously, as many people remember, that uh, this investigation really became compromised by the apprehension of an individual who turned out to be innocent, and that was Richard Jewell. Given the fact that they had the phone call, mm -hmm. but didn't they put Jewell somewhere else already at the time of the phone call? Well, they, they did. There was a lot of information that came out after all this went down, and uh, Richard Jewell is really kind of a very unfortunate soul in all this. One of these guys that was very excited about policing and investigation, and he did, in fact, make some statements that were somewhat suspicious and you know, ill-advised. But it brings up from my- Maybe he said to some customs agent that he was trying to get out of town yeah. before the bomb went off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been here talking to you, John. It's, uh, you know, yeah, no, no. I, I could so be- he had, So it was just because of what he was saying? He yeah, was just... he was working as a security guard down in the area, and there was some issues with opportunity and all this kind of stuff. I don't remember what actually led to his arrest, but boy, they fixated on him. 
like you couldn't believe. And, and what's really interesting about that, John, is that it highlighted and why it was so educational for me as, as a forensic scientist was that I got to witness this juxtaposition between science and politics because the FBI was in a very difficult position at the time because we had had the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center. There was an increasing amount of pressure being placed on the FBI to be able to portray itself as being on top of international terroristic threats. And so right. they had the Olympic Games on their home soil, and the world was watching how they were going to respond to this explosion that happened in Centennial Park. And so I can only imagine the pressure that was on these investigators on the command of the FBI to figure out who did this so that we can put to rest any concerns that might be out there in, in the international community that we're not capable here in the United States of responding to international terrorism, assuming that that's what this was, because we didn't know. And so I tend to believe that that probably contributed to it, just this desire to just respond and give the appearance that we know what we're doing. And as it turned out, he was not the guy, but he had been run through the ringer. Did any of the forensic evidence point to Jewel at all? No. Okay. So what eventually exonerated Jewel? How did things move from Jewel to Rudolph? Or was, there, was it not direct like that? Well, I would say that it just be, kind of became actionable investigative intelligence. It made everybody realize that this was not the guy. It was, it was enough information that you could just no longer make a credible argument that this is the guy that did it. Sure. So it wasn't any kind of aha moment or anything like that. That just became the fact. But what ended up really started to change the nature of the investigation was was not so much the evidence in the Olympic Park bombing, but in 20 years ago now, in January, there was an explosion, a major a dynamite-based explosion at a clinic that was known to perform services for women, including abortion of pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And this bomb went off, and of course it made the news. Well, what ended up happening was that an hour later, another bomb detonated, presumably to inflict damage on first responders. And so we didn't make the connection between the Olympic bombing immediately and the, uh, I think it was Sandy Springs bombing in January of 97, but eventually through the investigation and the intelligence, we realized that we may be dealing with a serial bomber. To some extent, that would have not been obvious, right? Because right. the clinic bombing obviously must have had some different motive than the Olympic bombing, and it was a dynamite explosive as opposed to just plain old black powder. Your question about the sophistication of the bomb is relevant to the dynamite bombs. Did now, he put nails into the clinic he, bomb? He did. Now, what was interesting is that the nail in the Olympic bomb was what's called a masonry nail, and that is a flat steel nail that is very, very rigid to be driven into brick and concrete. And so the masonry nails, these are cut out of steel plate in mm -hmm. a manufacturing plant and they're cut and then they're stamped to make the, the small head of the nail. The type of nail that most people are familiar with is the, the nail with, that is actually cut out of wire. And so it has a point and then there's a head that's stamped onto it. So it's the, you know, the, the round sure. nail shank and so forth. The dynamite bombs were all what are called common nails. So the Olympic bomb was a masonry nail. The subsequent uh, serial bombs using dynamite were common nails. So, as it turned out, Jerry Miller, he became a world's foremost expert on masonry nails, as I did with common nails. But it was, more, it was a more sophisticated bomb because he was attempting to shape the charge using steel plate, which was also wow. forensically significant. Uh, do we know now whether he was just dissatisfied with what 
he was happy, right, because he got the attention. Yes. But he was dissatisfied with the effects that he got. I think that that's probably true. You know, you mentioned some of the work that I do with teaching. One of the phrases that I like to use in a management context is that all behavior is a form of communication. And so these bombings were a form of communication for Eric Rudolph. And, I, and to your point, I think you're right, is that he didn't feel totally fulfilled that he had communicated his message sufficiently right. through the Olympic bombing. And he was a disgruntled Gulf War vet. He was an angry, angry man. And so that anger probably hadn't been sufficiently vented, and he upped his game. He was using some of his military skills, the ability to weld, the ability to use a torch to cut steel plate and try to shape the charge, familiarity with dynamite, familiarity with concept of a firing train or a firing chain mm -hmm. to detonate the dynamite. And, and so when he packed these things full of uh, nails, the, the detonation front of dynamite can be three times as great as a rifle bullet. And so nails were being found on tops of buildings right. you know, half a mile away. So you had a big crime scene. Yeah. Do you think that he did some experimentation in the meantime? You know, that's a good question. I, I suspect that he probably did. I don't know that for sure. When investigators finally got up to his neck of the woods up in North Carolina where he was living, you know, obviously there were materials that were found, including nails, which was mm. one of the first linkages forensically that happened. But yeah, he had the capability and the knowledge to do this stuff, but he, he was wanting to blow things up. And then we had some you know, evidence of certain notes that he was uh, leaving with these bombs that made certain political statements and so okay. forth. And, but th it really, it but was what really- were the political statements? Because everything you've described so far is somebody who's kind of confused, right? Yeah, well there's, he- there's abortion stuff, there's it, Gulf War stuff, and right. then there's the Olympics, just pissing people off. Exactly, like and you know, like one of the things that he did, uh, and this was in the newspapers, is that he claimed to be part of some group called the Army of God, you know, to exact their notion of justice on the world and this kind of stuff. And it really, it, there was really nothing there. He was just, he was just, you know, just trying him. to give an appearance. But really what he was, I think, trying to do was just blow stuff up and, uh, and do a lot of damage, get in the news, and, and he did. You didn't initially link the two bombings, or the three bombings, really, because he had a second bombing right, right there that, an hour after the initial clinic bombing. Right. right. Was the second bomb on the day of the clinic bombing the same as the first bomb? Was it, was it same type of bomb. Yeah, very, very similar. Okay. Same type of construction, uh, at, least, at least from the evidence that I received and looked at. They were very, very similar. And then um, there was also similarities with the subsequent bombs that went off shortly thereafter. Uh, one at a nightclub in downtown Atlanta that was known to be heavily frequented by the homosexual community in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Then there was another bomb at another abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, which I always found interesting that he went out to Birmingham, Alabama, and there was a off-duty police officer that was killed because he saw a suspicious package on the steps of this clinic and right when he got over to inspect it, it went off, which led us to believe that it was probably a remote detonation device that he, he was in the area. And what that did was that signaled to authorities that he was likely in the area. And the Birmingham bombing became the last of the serial bomb, was that that was the moment where we knew that he was in the area because there was too much of a coincidence for this bomb to go off right in this poor officer's face. And so that became the beginning of, of the manhunt, if you will. And he basically hid in the caves and woods of North Carolina for the better part of five years. Really? Before he was uh, captured, yeah. Mm -hmm. But had he been identified at that point? At that point, yes. John, I, it was amazing. In the, in the lower level of the building that our laboratory was in, 
it became the task force center for this investigation. And there were agents that were cycling through and doing a tour of duty on the investigation from all over the country. And so you'd get to know some agents and then they, they would be gone and new agents would come in and we were working with the FBI and, and so forth. And I don't remember exactly what led the investigators to realize who it was that they were dealing with. Okay. There may have been some witnesses up in North Carolina and uh, so forth, but we finally realized you know, who he was. Now, let's focus in on the forensics for yeah. you know, here. So did he then decide uh, to use the same basic bomb after that point? Was the Birmingham bomb a dynamite and, and yes. nail bomb? It was, and one of the consistencies in several of these bombs was the use of steel plate to try to direct the blast. So there's a, basically a physics principle in explosives that says that if you put a backing, you'll, you can direct the force. So he had knowledge about shaping the charge, sure. which suggested military experience. Was it just a plain old plate, or did he actually mill it down to try to, no, to he shape actually, it more? Well, that, that's a great question, John, because what he did was he used what's called a plasma torch. So a lot of people that are familiar with, or know even just a little bit about welding, if, that have seen maybe the use of an oxyacetylene torch with a big flame and you know to cut through, and it leaves a real jagged edge. But one of the things that we noticed on the steel plate was it had these very fine striations Mm -hmm. that seemed to be way too fine for it to be an oxyacetylene torch. And so we did some uh, research and found that at Ohio State University, there was a center called the Edison Welding Institute, which was a world-class welding school. So this is for welders who, they're not welding steel plate, they're welding things like the joints on the tubes on a Tour de France bike, you know, that extremely sure. fine top-notch, world-class welding. So I got sent up there and went to Ohio State. And I met an agent from the FBI uh, there, and we went to the Edison Welding Institute to talk to these people, and we brought samples of the evidence. And they said, oh, we know exactly what this is. This is a plasma torch that hmm. was used. And that's not quite as common. And right. what's interesting is plasma torches aren't used for welding. They're used for cutting. And that gave us a little bit more information about who this guy was and so forth. So that steel plate was important piece of forensic evidence and as well as the nails. Wow, so uh, so he had done a little bit of research there before yeah. it's all said and done. What is it about the nails that you were able to look at forensically to show that there was a commonality and, and yeah. were you able to source them at any point? We were able to presume some sources, but then you get into some limitations on what you can say and what you can't say, which was a great learning experience for me. But Jerry was doing the same work on the masonry nails that I was doing on the common nails. And so with Jerry, he was looking at marks on the nails, striations from these cutters that were cutting the steel plate. So it's steel plate that's being fed through a machine. These cutters come down, they cut the plate, they leave this pattern of striations or tool marks on the nails. In my case, the manufacturing of the common nails was a little bit more complicated because what these nails start off as, and I'll try to be brief, but they start off as huge spools of wire, bigger than this table, mm -hmm. that weigh over a ton. And the wire gets fed into a machine, and there's different kinds of machines. And they're literally, John, the nails are being manufactured so rapidly, they sound like machine guns going off in the manufacturing plant thousands right. and thousands of nails. And so the nail gets fed into the machine by what's called a feeder pin. That leaves a little mark on the nail. As the nail gets fed into the machine, there's two steel dies that are called gripper dies that come together and clamp the nail in place. Now this is happening in 
fractions of a second, right? right? It holds the nail in place. While the gripper dies are holding the nail, a cutting knife comes through and cuts the tip that goes into the wood when you use it, and then a device called a header slams the other end of the nail against the gripper die and creates the nail head, and then it ejects it out, mm-hmm. and you have one nail. Well, all of these things leave tool marks. So what was interesting is that as you looked at the bomb nails, is that you realized that you could categorize these hundreds and hundreds of nails that came from mm-hmm. the bombs into what I ended up calling, and again, to my knowledge, this had never been done before. I don't know if it has, so I can't say it was or not, but I wasn't aware of any literature or anything. But I could categorize the nails into what I called match sets. And I know you're not supposed to use the term match, but that's the term that I used. Yeah. And so if you looked at my workbench when I was looking at these nails, is I had all these little piles. So this pile, all of the gripper die marks could be identified as coming from the same gripper dies. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a pile over here where the heads of the nail had the same impressions from the header. And were they the same nail by, were they were all like number eight nails yes. or something like that? Yes, they were all six penny steel galvanized nails. So the galvanization process puts a, a zinc coating on the nail to protect it from rust. So that galvanization becomes an impediment to seeing these tool marks. One of the things, as you know, in forensic science that we always get concerned about is consuming evidence Mm -hmm. during the analysis. And this is a big deal with DNA and drugs. And and so the problem then became is, you know, how can I get this zinc off the nail so that I can see these tool marks? So I did an experiment and I got some galvanized nails and I realized that if I had a certain concentration of hydrochloric acid and I dipped the nail in the hydrochloric acid for up to a certain period of time, but no more, that I could get the zinc off and see these tool marks with incredible clarity. And so I, <laughs> I developed this. I was confident that I could do this without damaging the tool marks on the nails, and that's what I did. So I, in a fume hood, just hundreds and hundreds of nails, dipped them in the hydrochloric acid, and then pulled them out, stopped the reaction in water, and had nice, clean nail. And once I could see those tool marks, boy, now you could, you could do the comparisons and you could break them up into these match sets. So if you have statistically these bombs and in these bombs you have nails that have this match set having a particular statistical frequency sure. and this match set with a particular statistical frequency, I can now go to my lab director and say, you know, or to the investigators and say, you know, guys and gals, If you are able to find this person and you find six penny common nails Mm -hmm. and the nails in his garage or tool shed have the same distribution of match sets, Mm -hmm. that's going to be significant evidence. And Jerry was doing something very similar and that's how this all played out. That's that's really, really cool. So do you know uh, in retrospect whether he had just bought a huge amount of them and then mixed them up in a big bucket? and then was pulling them out for particular weapons? Or how did he operate in a way? Well, he was, he was going about? out and buying, he was going out and buying these nails. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it was, he was buying a huge amount, but it was enough to, you know, create quite a bit of damage. I don't know how many pounds of nails he might have purchased, but he did, and those nails were at his location once they finally found him. And Jerry was the first one to actually make the first identification where a bomb nail was identified as having the same pattern of same manufacturing marks as Eric Rudolph's nails. 
and then the work that I did became significant shortly afterwards in similar ways. But what was really fascinating, John, from a forensic standpoint, was that I remember when Jerry made the identification, and he was sitting in his microscope. He kind of looked back at me, and he says, you know, John, and he says, I got something I want you to see. And I, you know, I looked at it, and he had made the identification. I looked at him, and, and of course, now your heart rate goes up, and you feel something in the pit of your stomach. And you know, being a young, Jerry was more experienced than I was, and being you know, kind of wrapped up in the excitement of the investigation, you know, and desperately wanting to be able to give our lab director and the investigators information that they could start to sink their teeth into. You know, my mm -hmm. first response is, gosh, we can't wait to tell somebody, right? right. But Jerry, being more mature than I was, and he's, he kind of did the timeout sign and said, you know, wait a second. He says, John, what are we gonna tell him? He says, do you know how many nails are out there in the marketplace that have these tool marks? Right. And, I, and right when he said that, I knew what he meant, and, which is a big part of forensic science is what does this mean? Yeah, we made an identification. What does it mean? We need to be able to tell that investigator what does this mean? Because yeah, our, what they'll end up doing is they'll go out and buy every six penny nail on the East Coast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which darn near happened, John. Yeah. I mean, but the other thing that they're gonna do is they're gonna go to the press. Right. Because the President of the United States wants to know what's going on. The Attorney right. General wants to know what's going on. And there was a high potential of this nail identification being overly exaggerated as a compelling case of guilt. You know, I was proud, quite honestly, that we, and I thank Jerry for this, because Jerry taught me an incredibly valuable lesson, that we had that mindset that, look, you know, we're not in the prosecution business. We're right. in the science business. We're in just science. That's why we call that just, the There you go, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard because, you know, the detectives and the prosecutors and people like that get a lot of glory. And a lot of times that glory is based on the hard work and the sweat equity that's being put in by forensic scientists. That's but right. if you want to be true to the discipline, you have to be, you know, kind of tougher on yourself in that regard. You do. And I tell you, I, I still think, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, that one of the greatest skills of a scientist is self-restraint. And mm -hmm. if you don't have that self-restraint, you really create a lot of risk for your stakeholders, you know, in, in terms of how you characterize the wording of conclusions and... I'm so grateful for that lesson that I learned in that moment when Jerry was like, wait a second, you know, we, mm -hmm. this isn't just about the identification. That identification has to mean something. And what does it mean? Sure. You know, we don't know how many of these nails are out there, and, but it was these match sets and the fact that these surfaces that cut the wire or cut the steel plate in the case of the masonry nail or the gripper dies, they wear over time, and so you have mm. people that work in a shop that switch out the parts. Well, now your tool marks change. So these tool marks that we see on the bomb nails come from parts in these nail machines that have a limited life cycle. So that increases kind of the incriminating nature of the evidence if somebody has similar match sets, which is why this was all so significant. So Jerry and I both published articles on this, and mm -hmm. it really became interesting. And subsequent terrorist attacks overseas used the work that we had done on nails. and rewarding. We'll have to make sure, as part of the landing page for the podcast, that we get some of those publications that you all did in that area. Sure, that'd so be easy people to take a review of that. 
So did you all take a look at any other kinds of ways of looking at them? Did you do, try to do compositional analysis? Uh, and you know why I'm asking. is because yeah. that was the period when the bullet lead comparison was getting controversial. Right. You know, uh, the FBI actually did a lot of work on these nails as well. And they may have done some compositional analysis. We didn't do that in the ATF lab. Uh, we were focusing on the, the tool marks on the nails. Now, what was interesting was that from our perspective, the composition of the nail wasn't quite as critical for us because we learned something very, very interesting about these nails and about the liability that nail manufacturers have. So if, for example, a certain type of nail from a certain manufacturer is used in the construction of a house, mm -hmm. and then during a storm or a tornado, that house falls apart, that nail manufacturer may now be liable which seems unfair, but that's the way our world works, right? Sure. That they may be liable for a substandard product. So one of the things that these nail manufacturers would do, and I visited three plants during this investigation, is they would take a little cutting tool and they would have their own unique little mark that they would cut on the gripper die. Really? And when that gripper die pinched the nail so that it could be cut, because they're making a cut, it left a little raised impression in each nail manufacturer had their own little way of making an identifying mark so that the gripper die marks on the nail, they could look at it and say, that's not our nail, mm -hmm. or this is our nail. And so that little activity of the manufacturer created something of forensic significance. You know, and so when you look at all these nails, you could start to say, oh, this is a nail from Sterling, or you uh -huh. know, this is a nail from some other manufacturing. I, I tell you, I have never ending and being impressed with firearm and tool mark examiners. They know more about the manufacturing process <laughs> yes. of a variety of things, of yeah. course, especially uh, bullets and cartridges, and of course, guns and rifles and so on. Well, sure. It's you know, amazing. And it, it's true. And, and also the people that do the, the post-blast device work, because you, really what you're doing in forensic science a lot of times is you have to become a, a kind of a temporary expert on a manufacturing process or a particular product that is in the marketplace. So when I gave my first speech on the bombing, it was a forensic technical presentation at the AFTI meeting, uh, I did some research and found that the Department of Commerce has quite a bit of data on types of products that are imported into the United States, that are manufactured in the United States, and I could get some really interesting data on the amount of nails that were put into the U.S. marketplace. It was hard to find, sure. but I was able to find it. And so that kind of helps you understand then what your number is, your, the population that you're looking at for six penny nails. And it was just crazy. I mean, I never would have thought in a million years that I would ever be doing this. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I mean, it's great that you had the right instincts. I think that understanding that population and looking at you know, what is the significance of what I'm finding? Is That is what forensic science really is. It is. So returning to Rudolph, so after the Birmingham bombing, he was somewhat close to getting caught, but then he wound up running off into the woods for several years. Yes. But do we know whether he tried again to do any bombings while he was there? No. He didn't become a, the, Uni, the Unabomber was around that time too, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it was around the same time, and he was definitely still in the news, and there was some comparisons that were drawn between the two for certain. But investigators were heavily criticized in how they reacted to the Birmingham bombing mm -hmm. because they went public very quickly with the fact that this bomb had gone off and that they were chasing somebody 
Right. And just basically tipped him off terribly. Tipped, totally tipped him off. And so the sheriff up in uh, Murphy, North Carolina, was angry because he says, why did you all open your mouth? He says, this guy would have come up here and I would have grabbed him for you. Right. But instead, Rudolph now is taking evasive action, and he goes into these woods, which he was very familiar with, where they have caves that stay 50 degrees all year round. And so he was able to survive. But to our knowledge, or to the best of my knowledge, there was no other attempt. He basically went into complete seclusion for, like I said, almost five years or so until he was kind of found, I understand, kind of foraging around a dumpster for food or something. Sure. Or, it reminds me, there was a case recently of a guy in Maine, I don't know if you saw that, who... I did see that. Yeah, he yeah. was like hiding out for 25 or 30 years yeah. and stealing, very sophisticated, he was a very good burglar out yes. of the cabins and eluded police for a very, very long time. Yeah. But I was up teaching a class in Augusta and yeah. they were talking about that case, that's how I heard about it. It was it's actually amazing. Yeah. that they do what they do. But then, you know, as, as it happened in the Rudolph case, it was very, very unspectacular the way that he was apprehended and he eventually pled right. guilty. Yeah, the key there is to make sure that his fingerprints are out there and that when he does get caught, you know, the local police know that they caught somebody important, yeah, right? right? That's what, right. <laughs> there's where the danger is. Exactly. And what was really hard was that, you know, as a task force, how long do you keep at it? I mean, it's expensive. When do you kind of pull the plug and say, look, I don't think we're going to catch this guy. So it kind of suffers a slow death. It doesn't happen right away where sure. it's like, you know. Were you attached to the task force all those years or? Uh, no, I left the ATF in 98 and by that time it had pretty much died off. It was, it, I guess what you would call nowadays a cold case. They couldn't find him. They were trying, but uh, they didn't know where he was. They suspected he was up there somewhere, but. Yeah, did they wind up using the uh, nail evidence in court after they caught him? The nail evidence became relevant in terms of the plea negotiations, but he ended up pleading out, so it didn't. I, I think it was to avoid the death penalty. You had him nailed, though. We had him nailed, John. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry I had to you do it. You had to do it. John. I'm glad it was you. <laughs> <laughs> you probably heard that one one too many That's times, right, right. haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> so now, no, as I alluded to at the front, I mean, you uh, are doing something completely different now. Yeah. And, but I can tell, I mean, those lessons are still relevant. I mean, oh gosh, yes. Do you teach some of the lessons from the Rudolph case and some of the work that you're doing now? I do, you know, and, it, and because it really comes down to the behavior. I mean, it comes down to your behavior as a scientist, how you function in that environment because it's a very high pressure environment. I do a lot of speaking and writing on forensic a leadership, forensic science practice, and so forth. And I've thought about these issues for many, many years. And learned a lot of lessons that I try to incorporate into what I teach and what I write. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about forensic science, not only outside forensic science, but even inside forensic science, what it really means and what our role is in the criminal justice system. And, and so, yeah, that's what I do now. And I, I love it. I, my first ever book coming out uh, in January, which is going to be the first book ever written on managing human resources in forensic labs. So mm -hmm. we're hoping to get that published before the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting next year. So I'm excited about that. I participated in this week's ASCLAD Leadership Academy yep. as well, doing yep. some of that material. I was you? one of the founding uh, faculty member of that. We had our largest class of 85 people, so I teach the HR part of that. So I get to mm -hmm. teach about leadership in a forensic science environment. And I really enjoy teaching. I have never been a a war story person that tells a lot of case stories. The stories that have always stuck into my mind are the management related stories more than anything else. So when I get a chance to talk, for example, about the Olympic case, it's kind of exciting for me because I don't tell a lot of case stories. But I'll close the comment about the Olympics with one funny kind of interesting thing is that when I moved up to Illinois, 
and I became a fireman tool mark examiner for the DuPage County Crime Lab up just west of Chicago. I thought that I would never use ever again everything that I learned about nails. I thought right. that it was done, you know. Yeah, it was, that, you just put it in the obscure put, file. It's like right? retiring as a professional athlete. It's, I'm never going to do that again. Well, lo and behold, we had one of these what are called MacGyver bomb. A MacGyver bomb is a, from the television show MacGyver, where they'll take a two-liter bottle, fill it with uh, Drano, and then put tin foil in it, and then they cap it off. It causes the bottle to literally expand like a balloon, and it explodes mm -hmm. very loud. Well, some kid makes one of these MacGyver bombs, and what does he put in it? He puts in common nails. Oh my gosh. And I did. I, I hope the kid was stupid as opposed to evil because that well, yeah, could know, really hurt somebody. Oh, I know. It was, uh, they found it at a playground. Oh my gosh. Cool. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. And so I did the exact same work. And uh, it's funny because the investigators and the prosecutors couldn't believe that they had a guy there that, you know, DuPage County, Illinois. I mean, mm -hmm. Did the Drano corrode the nails so that you couldn't use your hydrochloric acid technique? Uh, no, it didn't cause any problems, fortunately. I hope there were no victims in that case. Cause fortunately, they, there wasn't. Yeah. You should probably hang a shingle with a nail out there. Just make sure if anybody needs any nail forensics, you know, I'm sure it yeah. comes up. Uh, that is, as you know, that a lot of the literature that's been published in forensic science is not very easily accessible. And so my paper was written, I mean, it was, what, 1997 or 98, I think I wrote it. Uh -huh. And so... And that was in the AFTI journal, and that's not something that you'll necessarily see. So the title of the article was The Forensic Significance of Common Nails. I've never searched it, so I don't know what you would find or if you'd be able, even be able sure. to find it. Well, one of my hopes with Just Science is that some of the lore of forensic science will kind of get passed on to the next generation a little bit. That yeah. there's somebody out there who might hear your story and say, you know, yeah. I might have a case like that. or. Oh, five years ago, I remember that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. So hopefully, we'll have some, some good going I, in that way. But I, I do yeah. appreciate you sharing the story with us. It was really, really enlightening and, and fun. Well, thanks for doing it, John. I, really, I appreciate uh, you and RTI putting this in the center of excellence, putting this together. I, I can't wait to hear the podcasts that you do. Next week on Just Science, we interview Kimberly Meza from the Mesa Police Department about a homicide case she worked on involving blood spatter. The case was a non-suspect case until a submitted sexual assault kit DNA profile matched the killer in CODIS. Please visit the FTCOE website at ForensicCOE.org for more information about this podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>